Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler and welcome to Clinically Thinking. Today's topic concerns the impact of child sexual abuse. This topic may be distressing to some of our listeners, so I encourage you to use your discretion in deciding whether this podcast is for you. Today's guest is Dr. Diana Kenny. Diana has combined her love of academia, research, music, teaching, consultancy, and clinical practice over the course of her working life. Until her retirement from the University of Sydney, Australia, after 31 years of service, she held conjoint chairs as Professor of Psychology and Professor of Music. She's currently a consultant psychologist, psychotherapist, marriage and family therapist, mediator, and family dispute resolution practitioner. Diana specializes in developmental psychology and developmental psychopathology, and has worked with a range of children and young people over the course of her long career, including disadvantaged and marginalized youth. And she has undertaken significant research on sexual offending in youth offenders and developed a model that predicts recidivism of sexual offending. Diana has served as the Chair of Ministerial Steering Committees for the New South Wales Department of Juvenile Justice and as member and acting chair of Ministerial Reference Groups on Sex Offending for the New South Wales Department of Corrective Services. She's an expert reviewer and report writer for the Office of the Department of Public Prosecutions in matters pertaining to child sexual abuse and youth sexual offending. In addition, Diana is the author of eight books, including one on gender dysphoria in children and adolescents, and another on children, sexuality, and child sexual abuse. It is the second book that is mostly the focus of our interview today. Welcome, Diana. It's great to have you on Clinically Thinking. You're most welcome. Yes. So I'd like to start by asking you a little about your career path and what led you to your research interests, which are seemingly quite different to each other when I looked at them. I thought, well, this is quite interesting. We've got child sexual abuse, performance anxiety, and then Freud and other things. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your career path? Look, it is, um, interestingly, I um, have just uh, been awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award um, by uh, Europe. And um, it involved me reflecting on the 40 years that I've been associated with the discipline of psychology and music, the disciplines of psychology and music. And um, I used an analogy um, of the a river in Turkey called the Meander River uh, because that's how my career has gone. Um, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm interested in a lot of things, but Primarily, my foundational cognate discipline um, is developmental psychology. So that is the psychology of children and how they grow and develop mm. over the lifespan. And, mm. and accompanying that is developmental psychopathology. So I'm interested in the issues that significantly affect the um, healthy development of young people. So when you look at it in that way, everything I've done coheres around those two disciplines, um, even music performance anxiety because that can start in adolescence and it can be a lifelong problem for people who, you know, choose to perform, um, even community musicians, not just professional musicians. Yes, absolutely. Um, 
that's a whole other podcast in itself, I think, um, music performance anxiety, one that's cl- uh, dear to my heart, as a matter yes, of fact. Yes, so you so, um, see it, yeah. Yes. yes, so perhaps we might save that one for an, another time. I'd be happy to do that, yes. That would be lovely. Um, but I can see when you talk about your, your, your core uh, interests are around is in developmental psychopathology, that that would make a lot of sense. The CSA makes sense, clearly. Uh-huh. And then if performance anxiety generally begins in an adolescence, then okay, there's a thing. Well, you know, yeah. most of our mental health problems begin in childhood, often in the pre-verbal years, and it's only very recently that there's been a recognition of that. And um, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily mm-hmm. think the psychiatric profession is completely across the fact that um, healthy mental, emotional, social and cognitive development starts at birth, um, and usually before birth, you know, because we've got children born with you know, fetal alcohol, you know, syndrome, spectrum disorder. Um, so if the yeah. mother doesn't look after the infant in utero, well, there's going to be problems immediately. Um, so, yeah, it really is a lifelong process. So I have to say that I, I have just read most of your book on children's sexuality and child sexual abuse, which is deceptively thin. <laughs> This is indeed a reference book, not to be considered a light, light reading, although very interesting reading, and would recommend um, to anybody who works in the area, well, what a bunch of areas, anybody who works with people really because it's either ch- children are affected by child sexual abuse clearly, survivors, adults, the police involved in this area, uh, social workers, there's a whole bunch of professions really that I think should be reading this book. I'm interested in starting our questions around asking you about how well you think Australia handles the notion of child sexual abuse um, uh, within the legal and social context. Do you think that Australians handle it seriously and really understand the impact? Look, I've um, been working in the field for, uh, you know, quite a long time now. I, you know, my first... Um, skirmishes into into the area occurred, you know, in the 1980s and 90s. And just within my professional lifespan, I've seen dramatic improvements in the way that the police and the courts manage um, allegations of child sexual abuse, both um, current and historical. Um, And um, I actually... Um, saw quite a number of people who came forward for the first time in like 50 or 60 years, and these people were in their, you know, 60s and 70s, who were victims of institutional child sexual abuse during the Royal Commission. Yes. Um, yes. And the stories that they told me um, about how they were neglected and um, silenced and how the institutions who were supposed to safeguard these children actually were the abusers. Um, So I've heard these absolutely heart-rending stories from survivors of institutional child sexual sexual abuse to more recent cases where um, police um, seem to be much better informed they actually interview children much more appropriately than they did even 20 years ago. Um, and, you know, they're much more willing to prosecute 
even when the child is the only eyewitness to what happened to them. So I'd have to say that this is at least one area where there have been significant improvements in the way that um, child sexual abuse is dealt with, yeah. Well, it's, it's heartening to hear that indeed, there's a change. I primarily work with adults, um, so my, most of my questions today are focused on adult survivors. Right. But I'm interested in uh, one, one of the few questions I have around um, the immediate, if you like, aftermath or impact of abuse on children. One of my few questions is around the, the, the Kellogg's sexualised behaviour table, which was new to me when I had a look at that. Uh, and, you know, I think people have, have some sense that children do display some sexualized behavior um, and I'm, I'm kind of interested in that and I might show my lack of knowledge but I'm interested to see a normal sexual what what we know about normal sexualized behavior in children why is it that children as young as you know three or four will sometimes you know or engage in some masturbation for example can you just talk to me a little bit about to our listeners a little bit about that yes look I think we have to make a distinction between sexual behavior and sexualized behavior. Mm-hmm. Sexual behavior right. is a normal human function across the lifespan, and sexualized behavior is more of a psychopathological term indicating the inappropriate um, display of sexual behavior. Um, mm-hmm. And you'll notice in Kellogg's table that um, he talks about. Um, normality in terms of frequency you know what are we most likely to see in children of this age and then an older age um and what are the um red flags Mm -hmm. for understanding when the line has been crossed between relatively normal sexual exploration or play or behavior into sexualized behavior that actually alerts us to the possibility that this child has been sexually abused or has had some kind of untoward sexual experience or exposure um, to what we would consider um, appropriate, yeah, sexual contact. So the, right, the, the distinction is really a helpful one. And then talking about the, these notion of frequency of these behaviours was being key and... What are some of the, uh, just briefly, some of the other red flags that are good for clinicians to perhaps to be alert to when they're working with children? I'm not, not talking, thinking about you know, the specialist clinicians amongst us necessarily who, you know, who are all over this, but more those of us in, say, in general clinical practice mm-hmm. they can look out for. What might be the sorts of red flags that might be helpful to think about? Okay. Um, so it might be helpful for us to think about what's normal yeah. in, in children. Um because, you know, that varies widely across subsections of the community. Um, you know, if you were sort of part of a, like a fundamentalist religious sect, what you would consider to be normal would vary greatly if you were, you know, a liberal, small L liberal, um, civil libertarian kind of person. So there is a very wide range of what people in the community would consider to be acceptable and appropriate sexual behaviour in children. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that in very young children, 
um, what appears to be sexual behaviour is actually not compartmentalised in their worldview or their life experience as sexual behaviour. Yeah. It's really, you know, a form of sensory stimulation. Okay. Um, and sometimes young children actually discover their genitals um, and, you know, they then realise that there is, you know, some pleasurable sensations emanating from where their hand has landed. Right. So, you know, in very young children, you know, they haven't sort of, you know, identified erogenous zones and, you know, genitals and, you know, and so forth. Um, they just know what it feels like. Yeah, it feels good. It feels nice. They're going yeah. to do it again. It's a sensory thing, isn't it, then? That makes yes, a lot of sense. That's, that's right. right. That's right, yes. So having kind of put it into that context, the red flags would be associated with um, the child not being easily distracted from the behaviour or who becomes angry and hostile if you know, somebody interferes with what they're doing. Um, another red flag would be... Um, what would that be if I may interrupt? Why would they be angry and hostile, do you think? Um, that's a very good question because yeah. we can't actually okay. ask children. But it is obviously serving a greater function than sensory stimulation. Um, and sometimes children who've been severely neglected will engage in the much less common forms of sexual stimulation as a form of self-soothing. Yes. Um, so neglected children kind of disappear into their own world and, you know, if they live in a, a grey world where people don't talk to them and play with them and cuddle them and hold them, they've got to find other ways of keeping themselves alive, really. Um, uh, that may be, uh, you know, an extreme sort of um, view, but it it has to do with that. Mm -hmm. That, uh, and if somebody is trying to stop a child from sexualized behaviour, they tend to do it in a punitive way, you know, um, especially if the child is resistant. So they might, you know, engage in a bit of coercion or maybe even hitting. Okay. Um, yeah. Right. So that's another sign. Um, another one would be um, that the child behaves coercively with other children, demands to see the genitalia of a, another child, you know, in a play setting. I see. Uh, yeah. So there are things that would alert most adults um, another another one would be seeking sexual contact with an adult. And the only reason or the main reason that a child would do that is that he's already had sexual contact with an adult. I see, he's yes. already been abused and um, he's incorporated that behaviour as part of something that he thinks all adults will do. Yes, I know you give an example of that in your book, which is uh, reads... Makes for pretty, pretty, pretty horrific reading, really. So, yeah. yeah, that's very helpful. You mentioned the term sex positive in your book. Oh. Oh. Yes. I wonder whether you could tell our listeners a little bit more about what that term means. Look, what it really means is that 
um, there's been a shift in regarding sex and sexual activity as um, some kind of aberrant behaviour, clandestine, you can't have sex before marriage, you can't have sex in certain positions, you can't do certain things in public. Um, and sex positive is really just referring to a change in societal attitudes, at least in the West. I mean, we can see that they certainly haven't changed in, in some Muslim countries, for example, where women are forced to cover up and, um, you know, disembody themselves when they go out in the street yes. as a way of protecting men from their own sexual arousal, you know. Um, so that's not yes. sex positive behaviour as far as the, the women are concerned. So it's more um, referring to sex is a part of the human experience and even though there, there has to be boundaries around sexual behaviour and, you know, there are issues of consent and appropriateness, it's just um, moving sex into um a kind of a wider societal lens about what human beings are and what they do. Um, so um, it, it's taking the kind of um, prohibitions um, away. Um, Is it more now, of a secularisation of, of sexual practice, for example, of, say, amongst teenagers or even adults, I, think, I guess? Yeah, I think that's yeah. a good way of putting it. Um, but having said that, there are things that are and will remain completely inappropriate, um, sexual violence, sexual coercion right. um, and, you know, pedophilic-type behaviours. Um, and unfortunately, um, these things are very prevalent in our society. So we haven't got a good balance yet in the way that we understand um, healthy sexual behaviour. So I guess the notion of, you know, sex positive, um, sex being sex positive is potentially quite a helpful term when, when it's about sex in a very positive and healthy way. That yes. That's what we should be aiming for is being sex positive, being uh, having a positive experience of it, that sex should be associated with having with positive experiences, shouldn't it? Absolutely, but also recognising that people vary a great deal in their interest in sex, in their, you know, um, willingness to engage in sexual activity and we shouldn't pathologise people who have very low libido and we shouldn't compare each other, you know, and say, oh, you know, if you only have sex once every two months, what's wrong with you? Um, the only time right. that becomes a problem is when there's a very unbalanced um, libido between romantic couples, you know. So if both have a low libido, it's not a problem for that couple. If they both have a high libido, similarly, not a problem. But if one has a very low libido and is not terribly interested and the other, you know, is very interested, well, that is something that the couple is going to have to process and work through. Um mm. But there's very, very wide variation in so, the, um, so there shouldn't be any bullying around, you know, different desires, sexual desires, libidos, or desires for different sexual, if I may, sexual positions, you know. Um, I, I read, um, I think um, Nikki Gemmell wrote a column about um, this 
bullying around people who just prefer vanilla sex, so to speak. And there's been a, a bit of a thing at, at the moment where people are being yeah. teased or bullied for just wanting, you know, preferring simple sexual activity or uh, infrequent. Yeah, look, we're a strange species. Um, we, we seem to want to push the envelopes to extremes and people who just want to stay in the paddock, um, you know, are not considered cool or hip or with it, you know. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's a great shame because it can lead to extreme and damaging behaviours. Just continuing to think about sex here, um, I've just got a question about um, the statistics and uh, you note the decrease in the number of adolescents having sex between 1991 and 2010. And I was wondering whether there was an impact of social media in this decline. Look, I think there's a complex reason for that. Um, The hysteria of the sexual revolution um, is behind us. Um, and, you know, young women are very focused on their individuality and their careers and their priorities. Um, and I think, you know, education has had a role to play in that um, they don't have to say yes to the first boy who asks them for sex and they're not square or, you know, prudish if they say no. Um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on respectful behaviour. So do you think that people, women have more choices around, particularly women maybe, making more, uh, taking notion of consent, feeling more empowered to, to, to say no? Yes, I think that's part of it. Um, okay. Definitely, yeah. Um, and young women are now saying they don't need to have sex as a 14 or 15-year-old because they've got a more solid sense of themselves as worthwhile individuals and they don't need to get their self-esteem from being in a relationship or agreeing to sex. Mm. I mean, there are young women out there who still do that because they're damaged, Um, but society doesn't demand it of them or expect it of them. Um, you know, young women as a group, as a whole. And they've got lots of good female role models, you know, who are giving them that kind of messaging. I say yes, indeed. Yes, that's true. Um, any other reasons that you would, hypothesis as to why there's this decline? Because normally adolescence, isn't adolescence when, you know, you're supposed to be trying everything and doing all the things you're not supposed to be doing and um, doing it because you're, you know... Your mum said you shouldn't. Look, I think um, better sex education has had a role to play. Uh, young mm. women are much more aware of sexually transmitted infections. We've had the HIV-AIDS pandemic. Um, you know, there's been a lot of focus on um, consequences for risky sexual behaviour. Um, and yeah. so I think, yeah, okay. I think that's also had a role. Do you think that social media has any any part to play? Is this, do you have any opinions on that? Look, social media 
has an enormously important role to play if only they would take their responsibilities seriously. I mean, social media is one of the major conduits of social fads and fashions, and some of them are benign and, you know, burn themselves out, and others actually cause incredible damage to young people who are very susceptible to social media messaging. Um, So, yes, I do think they've got a very important role, especially when they've hijacked a particular agenda, um, which we we see has happened with this latest pandemic of uh, gender fluidity ideology and gender dysphoria, particularly Mm. in female young women. Yes. I wonder whether we might just move on to looking at the question of whether child sexual abuse impacts children and adults differently from, say, single traumas or non-interpersonal traumas. That's a very complex question and it's it, it can't be answered yes or no. Um, you know, I've got right. a matter at the moment where this young boy was brutally assaulted over a 24-hour period um, and it happened once in his life. But the attack was so brutal and so terrifying because he was drugged as well as sexually assaulted repeatedly um, Mm -hmm. that his entire life um, has revolved around that 24 hours. He was never able to work he was never able to form a relationship. He never married, never had mm. children. He's in and out of That's psychiatric cool. institutions. Mm. Um, whereas other children um, who've experienced ongoing abuse, um, you know, may manage to do better than that. So it depends on a whole range of things, the age of the child, whether the child um, was securely attached to at least adult in their early life, um, their cognitive capacity, the support they got, did they disclose uh, immediately or wait for 40 years um, before they disclose? There's so many factors. And um, each person brings their own set of personal dynamics to that experience and they deal with it in their own way based on who they were before the attacks, the nature of the attacks, the relationship of the perpetrator to the victim, kind of support, if any, they received afterwards, a whole range of things. And that's why we can't, you know, make a definitive statement about that. Yes. I, yes, I'm aware that it, it's not a, there's not a simple equation. It's a complicated equation, isn't it? Um I'm wondering about the difference, if any, you know, that's any, any, if any sort of statements can be made around not so much a single, like a single 24-hour horrific experience of that abuse like you've described there, um, as opposed maybe to a, you know, non, non-interpersonal trauma. I, I, I just see this difference in my client, my survivor clients who've undergone child sexual abuse or neglect or physical abuse as opposed to a single trauma Um wonder whether your thoughts there's any any lessons to be learned any differences that we tend to see in those sorts of 
survivors. So by non-interpersonal, are you talking about natural disasters? I guess I I am more motor vehicle accidents and what else um, constitutes um, non-interpersonal just accidents, I suppose, are the other things, things that don't generally sometimes anyway don't involve people. Yes, yes. I'm just curious, I guess. Yeah, non-interpersonal trauma, as you call it, I'm not sure that I would necessarily use that description. Um, What would be a better term? um, Well, you you might have heard of um, the use in the literature. Um, There's one way of calling it. Some people say big T trauma versus little t trauma. Right. And little t is not lesser. It's just very different. So little t trauma is relational trauma. You know, you you haven't had your house crushed by an earthquake. You haven't been made a refugee. Um, But you've never had very much attunement or empathy from a caregiver. Um, Or you've been physically abused, but it doesn't constitute sufficient to be reported to the police or it was never reported to the police, that kind of thing. So big T and little t trauma. So the big T's are the you know the floods, the wars, the um, earthquakes, and so forth. And then we have the traumas of bodily integrity, where people have traumatic brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, amputations, where they have to let go of something very deeply embedded in them called their self concept, and they have to restructure their sense of themselves around the trauma that's led to a loss of function of some kind. Um, And once again, how people respond to all of those different types of trauma is very, very different. And it has an ecological context, but it has an intrapersonal context and an interpersonal context. Um, And so it just depends how those domains interact, um, you know, to result in the particular outcome uh, that you get. Um, So once again, we we can't really say what's worse. Would you rather have your leg cut off or would you rather be raped, you know? Um, It's it's (laughs) difficult. Yes, Yes, of course. That's very interesting. In the past... Um, child sexual abuse was thought to be more damaging um, than physical abuse or neglect, but I understand that the literature has changed, the thinking has changed over the years. Uh, What's the current thinking around this issue? Well, once again, it depends on the frequency, severity and duration of each of those different types of abuse. Um, And the finding that young children who have been sexually abused have often been exposed to other forms of abuse. Um, And so we really get a completely, you know, clean picture of this child was just sexually abused but didn't suffer any other form of abuse. Um, You know, often these children are abused with the mother in the house and the mother colluding, pretending not to know in order to, you know, keep the father in the home and so on. Um, So what we know now is that physical abuse spawns 
um, uncontrolled aggression in children because, you know, they've got all this absolute suppressed rage against the, the physical abuser but can't act it out because of the disparity, the power imbalance in physical size and the dependency of the child on, on the abuser. Um, but perhaps neglect is the worst of all um, because neglect over a long period, as we found in a number of populations, for example, the orphans in the Second World War and the Romanian orphans, um, they yes. actually die from marasmus. Um, and that is just terrible neglect, left in their cots all day, thrown about, not spoken to, not hugged, not cuddled, not picked up. And so the nurses were just changing their nappies and giving them a bottle Um, and they had very little other form of stimulation. And so this kind of chronic, profound neglect is actually lethal. It leads to failure to thrive and eventually death if it's not reversed. And children Mm -hmm. who are profoundly neglected in that way um, usually never fully recover. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. with you know very severe um, issues with um, developing a sense of self and a sense of themselves as relational beings. They've got actually no internal representation of a caring caregiver, parent, whatever it might be. Um, Mm. And even if we look at the um, juvenile offending literature, the children who exit the trajectory um, into chronic offending tend to have had at least one caring adult in their formative years. Um, and that has been considered to be hugely protective, protective. Of, of children, yes. So um, It does seem, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it does seem that if a child who then becomes an adult has, has not had one really a, a good attachment figure or caring figure, that psychopathology is much greater, generally speaking, and deeper and harder to recover from. Um, yes, in, you know, in the therapeutic context. Yes, that's right. Mm. That's right. You know, we see it in children who have been removed from homes and then placed with serial foster carers, um, and there's a huge scandal brewing. Um, you know, in the foster care space at the moment, because as if people didn't know how you know neglected and abused foster children are and that includes physical, emotional and sexual abuse under the nose of the Department of Communities and Justice. Um, and it sounds like there might be a repeat of what we've seen um, from what you're saying, you know, a repeat of the previous institutional abuse. Exactly. But, but we, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that's, they have. That's a very sad thing to hear. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very, very concerning. Um, You know, obviously some of these children come from less than ideal households, you know, to be removed. But the treatment they get once they are in the care of the Department of Communities and Justice is often worse than what they were removed from. And um, they can suffer permanent damage as a result of 
serial foster care placements that neglected and abused them um, without, you know, proper oversight from the placement officers and, and the department itself. Indeed, indeed. What is your impression of trauma-informed practice? It's a term we hear a lot and I'm interested to know what your impression is of it and what place you might think that has or doesn't have potentially in clinical practice. Look, I think it's a bit of a buzzword, to be quite honest, buzz phrase that, um, you know, different professions pick up at different times because trauma-informed practice is simply good clinical practice, you know, mm. showing respect for your patient, um, being attuned and empathic, being a good listener, providing a safe environment, um, knowing how to help the person regulate themselves in session if they become, you know, dysregulated. Um, all of these practices are what we should be practising with every patient. Um, and we do need to be particularly attuned to people who come with a, a significant trauma history. But most people who come into therapy have some form of trauma. Um, and, it, you know, it might be very little lowercase t, you know, by comparison to someone who endured, you know, child sexual abuse for five years, but they've still got, you know, their issues that, that need to be worked through and they need, you know, a safe, respectful environment in which to do it. Um, so, you know, there are probably some things that we have to be very careful about with people who come with frank you know, abuse of a, of a very significant kind. There are additional, um, like, uh, factors that clinicians need to consider when they're working with people who've come with child sexual abuse histories. Um, but overall, it's really quite similar um, to um, how we work with most of our patients and one of the really important things is that we don't leave the patient um, some people ask me in my initial assessment should I ask about child sexual abuse and my answer is no wait for the person to feel safe enough to disclose um, and we still we need to remember that it's still a low frequency event um, you know, by comparison, um, and we don't want, you know, like I'm just thinking about, you know, the whole repressed memory and recovered memories pandemic that we had a few years ago. Yes. That caused enormous harm, um, broke up families, sent people to jail wrongfully, people lost their businesses. Um, you know, I, you know, was seeing distraught parents whose children had accused them of things and that had never taken place, but uh, the relationship could not be repaired. Um, even if the adult child, you know, eventually retracts, the parents can never trust the child to be alone with them. Um, and it causes enormous difficulty if we step outside of our brief of listening carefully and waiting for patients to disclose their experience. 
That's interesting. Um, I'm, uh, yes, I w didn't expect that answer. I think I was probably assuming you were going to say that it's good practice, in fact, to make sure we, uh, you know, uh, adopt a trauma a trauma lens, which is what you said. Most clients come with some form of trauma so that we would all be, in terms of routine clinical practice, certainly be adopting a trauma-informed approach to sit with and to be respectful of and listening to. Um, but when it comes to actually asking about uh, child abuse, ex sexual abuse experiences, not so much waiting for disclosure, in fact, or as you've said, just wait for that to come for the client to feel safe. Well, you know, I'm not being prescriptive about this. No, I'm curious. Though. Yes, this, this is my um, conclusion after years of working um, with um, adult survivors as well as child victims. Um, well, I think that, it's a well-informed opinion, so I'm very keen to hear it. Yes, well, um, that, that that is my concern that, you know, Sometimes patients are so fragile and so dependent that they feel that they have to keep their therapists happy by being interesting. Um, and if, you know, um, the therapist presses for um, information about, you know, very painful experiences too early, um, you know, we can get... Um, trauma narratives co-constructed between the Sorry, I guess I was thinking about more just, you know, routine assessment around when one was doing a routine, you know, initial uh, assessment to ask about uh, unwanted sexual contact, for example, in, in adulthood or childhood, rather than looking for pressing, for, you know, clients for stories that aren't really forthcoming, which I agree with you would be inappropriate. Right. You see... Even if you ask someone, have you had unwanted sexual contact, what does that mean? Mm. I mean, um, you know, people will come and tell me that they've been raped um, and then you say, just tell me what happened from start to finish, you know, just mm. put it in your own words and tell me what that means. And I'm talking about adolescence primarily. Um, and... Rape to them equals unwanted sexual contact. Um, so it could be that the boy put his hand on her breast when she didn't invite him to. I see. Um, yeah. So we've got to be very careful with language and with understanding very clearly what the person is trying to communicate. Um, and so we have to just check with them that we're on the same page Um when we're talking about these um, terms. And it's very serious because, you know, they carry very different legal and criminal uh, ramifications. Um, and so I believe that we need to proceed very carefully, very cautiously. Um, and our primary role in the early stages of any therapy is to um, focus on developing a therapeutic alliance and uh, understanding the nature of the early attachments and um, how they will enter the therapy room and influence, you know, what is actually talked about and what is actually said and what is co-constructed between the therapist and the patient. Very interesting. Very interesting.
I note your your horrid accounts of victims' attempts to disclose their abuse to clinicians that I read in your book. And I wanted to ask you why why do you think so many clinicians appear to find it difficult to hear abuse stories or sit with their clients who've had such experiences? And why can't we just be kind and supportive and listen? Well, I mean, a lot of the um, examples I gave in the book were from professionals other than our own, not the non-valorising our profession as <laughs> over and above other professions. Um, but sometimes, um, you know, people who've been sexually abused or have sexual abuse histories are referred to other medical specialists because some of them have, you know, like um, pseudo-seizures or, or mm-hmm. you know, pseudo-epilepsy and so on. So they might be referred to a neurologist for an examination of the neurophysiology of their brain. And... Um, the neurologist doesn't want to hear about sexual abuse. They're just there to say whether your brain waves are regular and within normal limits. My work is done after that and I can't deal with sexual abuse and I don't want to be dragged into a legal wrangle or court cases and things like that. Mm. I mean, it's still incredibly insensitive, some of the, you know, stories that I've heard about what other specialists have have told me, uh, you know, what patients have told about um, trying to disclose to other specialists. Mm. Um, A lot of specialists now are very, very reluctant to step outside the very rigid boundaries of the one organ that they look after, you know. Um, So if you, you know, say you've got a pain in the gut, you go to a gastroenterologist, but if you tell that gastroenterologist that you're very, very anxious, um, which is probably causing the pain in the gut, he'll say he'll send you off to a you know a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Um, you know if you you know same with you know if you're recovering from a heart attack and you might have other symptoms, fatigue or anxiety yeah. or morbid rumination about Indeed, yes. the next thing that's going to happen to you. Well, that's not to do with your pumping heart and so you, you get sent off somewhere else. And so healthcare is quite fragmented um, and for people who've had these very traumatic experiences, they do need to have something that's more, you know, holistic, that somebody who will listen to all of it and put it all together. together. Yeah. I've certainly seen uh, my share of uh, clients who, myself, who um, have had pseudo seizures and being, you know, they're involved unnecessarily in uh, um, seeing neurologists, for example, and 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 before they've got back to me for me to say, "Oh, this looks like trauma," you know, or for example, functional neurological disorder, you know, is being diagnosed eventually after the seizures have been ruled out when they've been able to demonstrate normal. Um, EEGs, for example, um, I, I, I mind this experience would be that this is quite damaging for clients, not just not just the process of uh, of um, of being in that you know that medical system, but of being 
dismissed or being diagnosed with schizophrenia, for example, when really this is a a pseudo seizure. So I I know it's complicated and it's no one's particular fault. It's just trying to get to what's actually happening for the person. But um, I certainly have experienced this myself. Wonder you've been out of the experiences as well with clients over the years. Yes. Um, Look, it's interesting because we see exactly the same thing happening in the chronic chronic pain situation. I see. Yeah. um, Well, you know, people have an injury and then they recover physically or they have surgery and the surgeon's very happy with his handiwork and says, well, off you go, and the person continues to complain about pain. And those people, the people with chronic pain, have the same complaints about people who've experienced sexual abuse who don't feel as if they've been heard or understood or comforted or supported. Mm. So it's quite a common phenomenon um, and it doesn't just happen with, you know, survivors of um, sexual abuse. It happens in other things like chronic pain. So if you can't see it physically, a lot of specialists kind of close the door on that. They've done their thing. And, you know, I suppose, you know, we can understand that to some degree Um, and I don't think they spend a lot of time, orthopaedic surgeons or neurologists, in learning how to listen well and being empathic and supportive and, you know, trying to frame the person's symptoms Mm. in a way that makes sense to them and makes them feel heard and, and respected. And that can compound the original problem um, because then they go on a campaign um, for people to listen to them and hear them and so they won't give up their symptoms mm. until, you know, somebody says your symptoms are real or, I see, yes, yes, I believe you. Um, so, you know, we have to be careful of iatrogenic harm. Yes, yes, um, indeed. You know, and this is very, very common amongst you know, different groups of, of patients. Um, you know, people with generalised anxiety disorder have similar kinds of experiences. What on earth is wrong with you? Just get on with it. You know, there's well, nothing to be dismissed as a worried well, I guess. Yes, exactly, exactly. So I just, I just sorry, yeah. I just consider the GAD to be a, a poor, poor sister, if you like, of um, major depression, you know. Major depression is the kind of more appealing uh, diagnosis and uh, often GAD gets missed or mislabeled or dismissed. Yes, yes. Whereas they're really all part of the same dynamic, intrapsychic dynamic. Um, And I think all of us in all professions, we tend to, you know, compartmentalise all the different symptoms or just pay attention to the symptoms instead of the relational processes that are going on of which the symptoms are the subject. But what we should be focusing on are the relational aspects because often the the relationship between specialists and patients re-traumatise the patient Mm -hmm. um, and compound, you know, the original issue that they went with Because often, you know, not often, hopefully, um, nowhere near as often as previously, young children would disclose something and they wouldn't be believed. 
Yes. No, 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 that couldn't possibly have happened. Couldn't have happened. So no. if they're now sitting in front of a specialist and saying, oh, no, you don't have these symptoms or you might have a little bit of a twinge but you're telling me it's an excruciating pain and I, I just don't believe you, that can be very re-traumatising um, and destabilising. And um, we all have to be very mindful and careful not to add to the patient's distress in that I'm hearing you talk about compartmentalising versus relational or preferring a relational perspective to a compartmentalising one. And I'm wondering whether I'm hearing a sense of dissatisfaction, say, with that, maybe the diagnostic approach or to, or in general terms, uh, and particularly around, I'm thinking particularly around trauma, but uh, am I right? I, am I hearing your own particular therapeutic biases or preferences coming through, which might be slightly different to mine. I'm just wondering about that Look, as I, we speak. I, I practice from a psychodynamic psychotherapy perspective. Uh, that doesn't I mean that it. I don't find CBT useful um, uh -huh. and I find it very useful when I'm trying to train parents in managing their children's you know, misbehaviour. Right. Um, so it's horses for courses, you know. Yeah, um, yeah you know, there are so many different types of therapies. I think the last count was like 56 different types of modalities. Um, and what we need to do, I think, as therapists, we, we must practice in the forms that we feel comfortable with so, so that if we were going to ourselves go for therapy, um, would you be happy to be handed a homework sheet? but not be listened to um, for those core issues, you know, that have been troubling you for, for your whole life. Um, I was once supervising a young psychologist who was very steeped in CBT. She was only a year or two out of practice and she had all her worksheets and home worksheets and, um, mm. you know, was doing the very best she could. And the patient would be coming back each week and not having done them and getting more and more hostile. And then she, you know, handed him another worksheet at the end and stood up and ripped it into a thousand pieces and threw it on the floor. And he said to her, if you give me one more homework sheet, I'm going to run amok. And he just stormed out. Um, and yet he continued to come back. No, he didn't come back after. I didn't. <laughs> that was a great demonstration uh of his preferences and the lack of um, attunement, perhaps, to, to tearing it up into a thousand pieces. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like a way yeah. of managing, you know, a breakthrough of aggression and rage. Yes, you know? yes. Um, so it was a very yes. salutary lesson for that. Young yes, client. indeed. It's horses for courses. Listen to your client. Choose an evidence-based practice or a good practice with, which you feel comfortable and which you're trained and competent that matches or tunes with your client uh -huh. and the problem they brought to them. Yes. Exactly, yes. yes. Um, do you, I guess this leads on to another question I'm wondering about. Do you think, therefore, that there should be some specific training required for those wanting to work with uh, survivors of child sexual abuse? I know that in certain jurisdictions they you know, request that kind of um, demonst demonstration of that kind of training. What, what are your thoughts? Um, look, I think all therapists need 
a baseline of competence that is applicable to everyone who walks through the door. Um, and I'm talking about, um, you know, the empathy and attunement, the, the good listening, but also the ability to construct a dynamic formulation. In other words, mm. knowing how to bring past experiences into the room so that you can rework them and have a different, more satisfactory ending to the one you had in childhood or adolescence. Um, so I do think that um, there has been insufficient training in some tertiary institutions, um, you know, recognising the continuity of experience from, you know, infancy, childhood, adolescence into adulthood um, and that the way that we respond to adversity in adulthood is very intimately connected with the resources and the resilience we did or did not develop as young children um, and that needs to be um, addressed. And so with child sexual I think the specialist training is, would be in what not to do <laughs> as, as, you know, as opposed to what to do. Um, the specialist, when you say with specialists, what are you referring to there? Well, first of all, I think people need to understand and contextualise child sexual abuse, all the different forms that it takes um, and the impacts of certain experiences surrounding the abuse. Um, you know, issues related to disclosure, issues related to how the person understands and interprets what happened to them. Um, you need training in, you know, using the appropriate language. You need to get comfortable with using explicit, you know, sexual terms and talking about things that really would make you feel very uncomfortable in any other you know, setting, um, you know, so there has to be a fearlessness about helping the person describe and process um, the, the experience. And if they sense any disgust or um, discomfort in you, it, it will shut them down. So you talked about the importance of good clinical uh, practice uh, formulation-driven approach where you, I like this notion of bringing the past experience into the room and, I, and your developmental approach to problems, I'm hearing that in the way you speak and I love this notion of fearlessness amongst clinicians who work in this space because it feels to me that that is essential and that comfort with talking about difficult, often seen difficult things is is really important if you're going to work in this space if it's in a clinical or in a medical legal context would that be fair fair summary yes, yes that would be fair the other thing that i've seen that does disturb me is that um clinicians can get you know habituated or burnt out to the stories they hear um and can get quite dismissive of patients oh look not another bpd walking through yeah. the door you know, right. or she tells me she's got DID and so all these acronyms, of, you know, dissociative identity disorder or borderline personality. Yeah. And if you come in with a diagnosis or a suggestion or it's in the 
the notes that you receive to to you know really search within for that dismissive attitude you know that oh you know they're hopeless they're going to split the team they're going to you know not respond well um, yeah. just going to keep bouncing back um, oh do I really have to take that particular person into my caseload so you know I think people working in these very difficult areas do need support and supervision peer groups um, so they do need protection self-protection as well so that they you know can give them their best when the patient is in the room so regular supervision close supervision good scaffolding for the clinical work to protect both client and and clinician working in this space it seems essential yes definitely indeed yes I think you've already, you've already answered this, but I just want to check. In, is there no specific cluster of symptoms associated with the long-term impact of child sexual abuse because, despite decades of research because there is none or is, is there something else to be learned here? Look, there are huge ramifications of child sexual abuse, mm. um, but they vary across individuals and there's no particular strong cluster of diagnoses or disturbances or dysfunctions, but it can affect the the person across all domains of functioning, personal, interpersonal, with regards to um, educational and employment, underachievement, um, homelessness, um, sexual dysfunction. um, Some of the people who've being sexually abused, go on to sexually abuse. Um, mm. Some develop a predilection for pedophilia. Um, so there's just a huge range of damage that can be done by people who have been sexually abused, but each one of them has their own cluster and they're their own mm. individual consequence of those experiences. And if I could put a plug in here for the book, if you're wanting further detail about this, I'd encourage uh, listeners to be um, t- uh, grabbing themselves a copy of Diana's book and reading. I mean, if I could just ask uh, finally, well, what next? What do you think clinicians could do better to help this group of clients? Look, I, I see how important it is for people to get justice. Um, And that became abundantly clear in the institutional um, responses to child sexual abuse royal commission. Some of these people had not spoken to anyone in 50 years of their abuse and some of their stories are blood-curdlingly tragic and terrible. Yes, indeed. Um, So I think that we have to keep that in mind if the perpetrator has not faced consequences. This can be um, a huge impediment to, I don't like the word recovery because people, you don't recover, you know, but you can incorporate those experiences and make them less front and centre of your life than previously. 
Um, I, I heard this talked about, this notion talked about with a survivor, so to speak, of um, Holocaust, and I think she used a similar word that you couldn't recover from such events. You couldn't even heal, but you could find a way to make sense of or, I think, incorporate Yes, was used as a word yes. as well. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think the critical thing for adult survivors who disclosed very late is to deal with the sense of guilt and shame and blame a lot of these children will say that it was their fault or they must have been bad. And if they disclosed, they would have broken up the family. So a lot of these young children carry enormous burden of difficult emotions that they haven't been able to sift through. And so it is very important that that occurs in whatever modality of therapy you're working with. Very interesting Well, thank you very, very much for um, your time today. I'm very grateful. I'm sure our listeners will be uh, will appreciate your time and the things we've had to talk about today. Um, I wonder whether you might uh, draw to our attention uh, any other resources that you might have available for our listeners. Um, Well, for the interested listener, um, I could refer them to my website, which is www.dianakenny.com. .com.au um, and there is a, a page there that um, outlines um, some of the other books that I've written um, in particular on child development and uh, psychotherapy practice that might be of interest to your listeners. Fantastic, thank you. We'll make sure those that uh, website goes up on the, on the Facebook page as well. So thanks again. You're most welcome. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out our Facebook page where you can interact about the podcast and where we'll make sure that we post links to Diana's website where you'll find various resources, including her books. See you next time.